Well, and I'm grateful for that particular song because it draws great imagery directly out of the text that we're going to be in here together this morning. A text that I'm very much looking forward to getting back into with you. And so I would encourage you to go ahead and open your Bibles together with me to Revelation chapter 4. Now I know I'm catching many of you off guard by asking you to turn with me to Revelation because you might be thinking, I thought you promised us that this week we were going back to John 13. And the answer is, we are, but not before we go back to Revelation chapter 4. And there's a reason for that. And the reason is this, see, in order to really fully appreciate what's going on in John 13, we actually have to keep reading in the book of Revelation. And the reason for that is because as the second act of John's drama opens in John 13, 1, there is something that is hidden in the heart and mind of Jesus. And that's this, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come to depart out of this world and return to the Father. See, as Jesus enters into the upper room with his men, He's thinking about the picture that we are clued into in Revelation chapter 4, which means that going back to Revelation 4 and reading that chapter is a great segue from where we have been to where Jesus is going to be going here in John chapter 3. So I know this is a little bit different this morning, but I'm going to read for us here the entire chapter of Revelation chapter 4. And and just listen to this, read along with me if you'd like, uh, because the imagery here really needs to be locked and loaded in your mind as we go back to John chapter 13. So pay close attention now. After this, John says, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, And the first voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. And around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. And from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass, like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the twenty-four elders fall down before Him who is seated on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed 
and were created. Friends, that's the scene of what heaven's throne room is like. And that is precisely what Jesus has on his heart and in his mind as we go back to John chapter 13. Turn there together with me now. See, as we go back to John 13, you've got to keep that picture in your mind because it was in Jesus' mind. See, when you understand the glory of what he was looking forward to returning to in heaven, then it will put in perspective just a little bit about the humiliation that he embraced for you while he was here upon this earth. And that's part of what makes John's gospel so very unique, see? John's got this uncanny ability to show us what is in both the heart and mind of Jesus from the inside out, if you will. He's got the ability to essentially put us inside the person of Christ and to view the work of Christ through his own holy eyes. And that makes John a very unique, insightful commentator on the person and work of Jesus Christ. And indeed, that's what John 13 through 17 is going to be all about. See, John 13 through 17 is a passage of Scripture that is known to us as the upper room discourse. It's a passage of Scripture where Jesus really opens his heart up for his men and for us by extension so that we might see into the heart of God. And that's really what one Puritan writer has called this text. They've called it an open window into the heart of Christ. And see, when when that little portal gets opened up and we peer through, what we are going to find here in these texts is an ocean of love. A, A love for his Father on the one hand, and a profound boiling love for you and for me on the other. A love that runs so deep that it defies description. And and my prayer for you, for me, for all of us is that as we go through these next chapters in the coming months and see the love of Christ for us, that our love would grow in return for Him. See, that really is our objective as we go back to John 13. But as we do, we must remember the glory of heaven that awaited Jesus because it was His returning to that glory that drives Him through the suffering that was to come. Suffering that He knows is necessary so that you and I might now be caught up into the profound, indescribable love of God. And that's what the task is that has been set before us, to seek to comprehend the incomprehensible and to describe the indescribable, namely the love of Jesus Christ for his Father and for you. And that's what this section of Scripture is going to teach us much about. So as we look into this text, I want for us to notice right away as we open up in verse 1, I want for us to see the extent of the love of Christ. John thirteen one. John introduces this next half of his gospel with these words. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Do you see there the double emphasis on the love of Christ for us, his own, and how that he loved us to the end? 
Friends, that is the extent of his love for us. And we need to take a few moments now to seek to understand that love because that is the love that is going to undergird the explosion of theology that is coming towards us in these next four chapters. And we're going to take a few moments here and make sure that we understand because the events that are before us in this text really are the foundation for what is coming here over these next four chapters. So let's take the time to make sure that we understand. See, right away in this text, we find a chronological marker that tells us something exactly about where we're at in the life of Christ. It was before the feast of the Passover. Here's what that means. We are on Thursday night around 7 p.m. before Good Friday, which is going to take place the following morning. And here is the story of what had taken place over the last day for our Lord. You know, if you recall... Our study together from John chapter 12, which I know was several months ago now, you will remember that Jesus had one final confrontation with the Jewish people up on the Temple Mount. And then he had pulled the veil over the brightness of his glory and left them alone in darkness. John 12:36 tells us that, that he departed from there and he went and he hid himself. The other gospels tell us that he retreated from the temple and ascended up the Mount of Olives, which is just opposite the temple. And there he sat and spent the night with his men talking about the destruction that was going to come upon Jerusalem because they had rejected him. But as Thursday now dawns on the Mount of Olives, Jesus and his men have arrived at a day that is known to the Jewish people as the day of preparation. And it's known that because at precisely high noon, all work was mandated to stop so that people would have plenty of time to get, rem- to get themselves ready for the Passover celebration, the highest celebration and holiday in the Jewish calendar. And it's probably right around that point, noon, that Jesus dispatches Peter and John, the author of this gospel, to go into the city and prepare for the Passover feast. We know that from the accounts of the other gospels. Now, Peter and John would have needed money for this errand to purchase those supplies, which they would have gotten begrudgingly from none other than the treasurer for the group, Judas. And thus have we been introduced to all four of the major players of what is about to unfold in the next four chapters. And so Peter and John, they set off into the city to go see about the arrangements. But see, that process, arranging for the feast, it's noon, the feast is at seven, they've got seven hours, and they were going to need every one of those hours, because preparing for the feast was a lot more than just going and securing the room that Jesus had providentially arranged for them. See, based on Jewish custom, here's what that would have entailed. A Passover feast that would be the last divinely sanctioned celebration prior to the one that happens in the millennial kingdom. At 3 p.m., after having secured the room where they would eat the meal, Peter and John would have returned to the temple and slaughtered their own lamb, draining its blood into a bowl which they then would have taken and thrown against the base of the altar. The lamb would then have been skinned, a portion of it being removed to serve as a burnt offering. 
Peter and John would then have wrapped the rest of the carcass in the lamb's own wool. They would have slung it over their shoulder metaphorically. Well, not they would have literally done that, but metaphorically walking out of the temple, bearing away their sin, essentially, and they would have departed to prepare the meal. That's what the Jewish people in Jerusalem did on the day of Passover. Now, this is probably the last time that either man went through this ritual Because on the following day, you see, as they would soon learn, the true lamb was going to be sacrificed for them, eliminating the need for them or us to ever offer any kind of future burnt offerings. But the lamb that they carried out of that temple, it was required to be eaten entirely that night, no leftovers allowed. And so Peter and John had a lot of work to do as they leave the temple mount. You see, there's blood flowing everywhere, we're told, into channels and out of Jerusalem in a veritable river. And according to Jewish tradition, they'd have taken the remainder of the lamb back to the house where they were going to be celebrating, and they would have roasted it there in the courtyard. Now fast forward from 3 p.m. to 5 p.m., because as Jesus now comes off the Mount of Olives to make his way over the couple of miles to the upper room, he has to pass by the site of the Temple Mount with a bleeding of hundreds of thousands of lambs that are even in that moment being sacrificed is audible in his ears. Hundreds of thousands of Jewish worshipers, blood-stained worshipers, who have just finished slaughtering their own lambs for their own sin, flowing in and out in well-coordinated shifts. People who were preparing to point their eyes towards heaven, looking and hoping for deliverance from that heaven not realizing that the atoning sacrifice that they needed was there walking in their midst. And he had told them exactly who he was, and yet they had rejected him. And yet as he walks by that place, what is he doing? He is preparing on the next day, even as thousands of gallons of blood are being shed up above him to shed his own blood to become the final and ultimate sacrifice. See, as he makes his way, sunset begins to come down upon the scene. It arrives on April 2nd in Jerusalem at 6.59 p.m. And that's the last sunset that Jesus would have experienced before the resurrection. And at that point, Jesus and the other ten disciples, they show up to the upper room where the next four chapters of dialogue in John's gospel are going to occur. The scent of roasted lamb filling the, filling the air. Peter and John now rejoining Jesus and the other ten disciples. And, and as they file into the room, their feet are filthy. Having walked for miles that day through the dust and dirt and excrement of the ancient world, most likely being stained with the blood of lambs that is literally pasted all over Jerusalem. And they're filthy. But, but rather than looking around to see which one of them is going to offer to wash up for dinner, The disciples, these paragons of virtue, are more interested in which place they are going to occupy there at the U-shaped table. And it's probably that conundrum, who sits where, that sparks the debate that is recorded for us over in Luke chapter 22. Here's what Luke says, verse 24. Now, a dispute arose amongst them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. Seriously, you guys, have we not already covered this ground in prior conversations with Jesus? And yet that's what they're most consumed by. Apparently, John, still smelling like barbecue lamb, and Judas, his pocket stuffed full of cash, won the argument because they end up sitting, respectively, on the right and left side of Jesus at 
the table. Meanwhile, in the heart of Christ, here's what's happening. John chapter 13, verse 1. Jesus knew that His hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. Having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. See, according to that verse, Jesus is thinking about the glory of heaven. The Revelation 4 glory that we have just read about. The glory that belongs to God there in that place. As all of heaven cries out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who is always and ever will be worthy of praise. That's what's in his mind even as he's there amongst these disciples with their bantering back and forth in their selfish argument. There's a jarring juxtaposition, contrast, between where he's at in his mind and what's happening all around him. You see, his mind's focused on God's glory. But the mind of the men, the environment that he's in, they're focused on their own glory. And so what does Jesus do? Does he erupt at them with impatience? Does he put the boys back in their places, so to speak? No, listen. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now, folks, just stop and calibrate here with me for a moment about that statement. These men that he is loving to the end, they're not saints. They're selfish brats. Nobody is seeking to be helpful. Nobody is seeking to serve. Nobody is noticing the strain and wear and fatigue on his face. He has just spent the last four days teaching nonstop under the threat of death that was very actively being bandied about the city. But everybody in the face of the knowledge of that is focused not on him or on his condition or his plight. They are focused on themselves. And yet, according to John chapter 10 and what we've learned, these men, 11 of them at least, had been given to Christ by the Father before the foundation of the world. And so, in the face of their selfishness, Jesus, the Lamb of God, Yahweh Creator, King of Heaven, loved them, despite their profound unloveliness. He, God clothed in human flesh, loved them, Men who were in that moment being consumed by their flesh. Eleven men who, by the way, bear a very uncomfortable resemblance to you and to me. With all of our faults and all of our failures, I want you to see now that statement again. He loved his own to the end. See, in the context of the Gospel of John, in the context of this narrative, that's a statement that refers specifically to the men in that room. But in the context of the theological context and the case that John has been building over the first 12 chapters of his gospel, that statement applies to a whole lot more than just the people in that room. See, it applies to you and it applies to me as well. That he loved us who are his own and he did that even to the end. See, in the face of our own sin, in the face of our own unloveliness, Jesus Christ died 
for us as the ungodly ones. Before we could ever move a finger towards loving him, he first loved us and was willing to sacrifice himself for us. He loved them to the end. He loved us to the end, despite the unloveliness that we know characterizes who we are. And indeed, oh, how he did love us. And that's what we're going to see here in these coming chapters. And so, instead of cutting these men down a notch, Jesus comes back to them and offers some kind and lasting words of friendship. See, according to the Gospel of Luke, he says to these men, it is with fervent desire, guys, that I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I finish. They didn't deserve that. But where is his fervent desire? It's to return to heaven and it's to be with these men. He says, for I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And so the jostling stops and everybody settles in and the meal now begins. But what they don't know is that in reality, Jesus has just set the table to teach them one grand final lesson about the nature of his love for them. And that's where now in the text, these next verses 2 through 5, we find for ourselves a picture of Christ's love. And friends, this picture becomes so very important because it would be so easy for us to just say, Jesus loves me, this I know, and I've known it since I learned that song in preschool. And then to just superimpose our shallow and anemic understanding of love, human love, onto that statement and then just move along. I know Jesus loves me. But what you've got to understand is that your shallow comprehension of human love does not begin to do justice to the deep, rolling, mighty reality of the love of God. See, the love of God that we're about to witness in these chapters, friends, it defies description and is beyond comprehension. And yet, despite the fact that we're told you cannot fully comprehend this, this side of eternity, that is the task that is before us in these coming chapters. In these coming four chapters, our task is to seek to comprehend the incomprehensible and to describe the indescribable, the love of God. And and that's the reason why, I believe, this section opens up with a beautiful picture. Because Jesus is about to give us one of his all-time great lessons with a profound picture. I mean, a picture is always worth a thousand words, is it not? And that's what he gives us here in verses 2 through 5. Look at it together with me. Now during supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, we'll come back to that, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, we'll come back to that, he rose from supper. Here's the picture. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. That is the picture that he gives us for our consideration. And friends, that's a picture that we must understand thoroughly because it is the fuse that gets lit that then leads into all of the remaining discussion over these next four chapters that we'll be discussing for the next number of months. See, these men had this image in their mind as Jesus said everything that he is going to say in John 13 through 17. 
And so we too ought to have this image in our minds. We need to lodge it there with such force that we don't forget about it in the weeks to come. So let's seek to understand. Let's gain some perspective on what Jesus is doing here. The first perspective we'll see here is perspective on what Jesus is facing here. See, his love, in verse 2, is on display despite what is before him. I mean, he is about, verse 2 tells us, he is about to suffer the cruelest of betrayals. From the man on his left, no less. A man who, from a human perspective, just won the argument about who is the greatest. After all, he got one of the two posts of honor. Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. Now, this man has already been introduced to us a couple of times in this book, if you'll recall. Back in chapter 6, verse 71, Jesus refers to Judas and said, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? Now that reference is very significant because the events of John 6 take place precisely one year prior to the events here in John 13. Both of the events taking place at Passovers, yet separated by a year. And yet, one year prior at the last Passover that Jesus had celebrated, he already knew at that point, a year beforehand, the reality of Judas's heart and what Judas was going to do. He had known the reality of Judas even more than Judas knew the reality of Judas. And yet over that year, Jesus patiently bore with the knowledge of Judas's coming betrayal. See, folks, that's love. That's Matthew 5.44, kind of loving your enemies. In chapter 12, Judas pops up again. And there he had tipped his heart off for the first time publicly when he becomes enraged that Mary would dare to honor Jesus in such an expensive way. And his words seep out of his mouth, revealing his heart, before he has the chance to rein them back in. And Jesus says there in chapter 12 to Judas directly, it's a, it's a loving, tender appeal. Judas, you're not always going to have me with you. Don't rebuke her. Judas, you need to be like her. That's Jesus' appeal to him. It's a loving, tender statement of regret. And we're told in the Gospels that it was in that moment in the face of Jesus' perfect love that Judas's treacherous greed pushed him to settle on a course of betrayal. And what a hateful, spiteful act of betrayal that was going to be. I mean, Jesus is a perfect man. He has never shown any kind of wrong and he's never shown anything but love to Judas. And yet Judas is going to take him and knowingly hand him over to those who are seeking to put him to death. And yet in the face of such a hateful, spiteful, bitter heart, Jesus still kneels before him in this picture and washes his feet. But see, it's even deeper than that in verse 2 here. Because he's not just up against Judas. No, he's up against the greatest of his enemies. For Satan himself, we're told, had entered into the heart of Judas. See, this man is possessed by Satan, the mortal enemy of Jesus, and Jesus knows it. I mean, from the time of Adam and Eve, the prophecy had been given that Satan was going to strike the Messiah on the heel. Yes, causing great pain, but Jesus was going to crush his head in the process, winning victory forever. Jesus knows that. And so he's not stumbling into the darkness of what is to come here. He's aware. He is very much aware of what is going on in Judas's satanically inspired heart. And yet, what does he do? That's the love I want you to see. 
he still stoops down to wash the feet of the one who is seeking to bite him and strike him on his heel. When you see what Jesus is facing here, the horror of it, the cosmic nature of that struggle against evil, his act in these coming verses just shines all the brighter. When you know who he is, the revelation for God of heaven, facing his most mortal enemy, and yet, what does he do? He still bows, and he still washes, and he still exhibits a heart of humility and love. That's the perspective on what he was up against. But let's see some perspective on who he was. Chapter 13, verse 3. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, see, grammatically, it's that knowledge that drives him to do what he does next, namely, rise from supper and gird himself in a towel. And so, this statement becomes very important here. It speaks to his motivation. It speaks to the reality of what's going on inside of, on inside of his heart as he engages on this front. See, he knows that the Father has given all things into his hand. You say, well, how did he know that? Well, the verb tense here in verse 3 is past tense with results that carry on into the present. Here's what that means. Way back before creation, before time even existed, Jesus was there, and the Word was with God, John has already instructed us. See, He was there, glorious Himself in the presence of the Father's glory, when the Father determined to bring them both as one even more glory by catching up humanity into the love that Father and Son and Spirit shared with one another. Friends, that is mind-boggling. You say, exactly how did that work? Well, I don't have time to tell you this morning, but stay tuned because that theme of love between the Father and the Son and you and me is going to be the driving theme of our study over these next four chapters. That's the primary theme. But for now, it's enough to know that on the very forefront of Jesus's mind was the eternal plan of God to glorify himself by demonstrating love to you through the person of Jesus Christ. And so it was with that knowledge in his mind that he rises from supper because he knows, the text tells us, that the time has come for him to leave us and go back to God, the very place where he had come from. See, it's this perspective on him as the king of heaven that now puts into dramatic perspective exactly what he is about to do. So now that we've gotten down to verses 4 and 5, let's gain some perspective on what he actually does. And this is really the heart of the text here. See, his action in these next two verses, it's going to be the fuse, as I've said, that detonates the explosion of truth that is coming. And we know that it's important because the pace of the narrative in these verses, it slows down into slow motion, where John switches over here in his voice to the present tense as he tries to graphically capture every single twitch of Jesus' movements. If you translate this verse in the original language, here's what it sounds like. Literally, he is rising from supper. He is laying aside his garments. He takes a towel and he tied it. Then, John says, he is pouring water into a basin and begins, and you can hear the gasp in his voice, watch now, to wash the feet of the disciples and he is wiping them with the towel that is wrapped around him. 
John wanting to catch us up into that moment and make sure that we don't miss any one of Jesus's actions. The description is so drawn out that you can really hear a proverbial pin drop there amongst the disciples. As they, in shock, watch each one of these movements, every one of them calibrated carefully to communicate an extreme heart of love for his own. Now, it's kind of hard, isn't it, for us to understand the significance and nature of what that moment would have been like, because we live in a democratic, all men are created equal sort of society. And so for us, this action, yeah, that's surprising, but I mean, somebody had to do it, right? But, but in, in their society, their highly structured, hierarchical world, this was absolutely earth-shattering. You see, students had a sacred obligation to serve their master, never the other way around. Let me illustrate that for you. Do you remember the statement of John the Baptist way back in John chapter 1, verse 27? Now, I know I'm reaching a long way back because it's been a long time since we've studied that. But you'll remember that John says of Jesus there in that text, He who is coming after me, the strap of his sandal, I am not worthy to untie. John the Baptist saying there, I'm not worthy to be his lowliest slave. Yeah, the one appointed to wash his feet, take his sandals off and wash his feet. That provides you with some perspective on how low Jesus was going here to serve his men. I mean, this was a task that was reserved for the most menial slave. I mean, the Jewish people did not even expect their own Jewish slaves to perform this service. No, this was a task that was relegated to the lowest of the low, to the, the lowest bracket of Gentile slaves. And, and see, what you have to understand here is that as every man in that room is scratching and clawing his way to ascend up to to the top of the heap, which way is Jesus going? He's going down. As they seek to ascend, he begins to descend, to humble himself, and to do something that is for them unthinkable. But friends, this is not just so that he can be a model of Christ-like behavior for them. It is that, and he'll explain it, but it's also a powerful statement to them about exactly how much he loved them. Because everything about it, everything is humiliating. The fact that he takes off his garments, it's in the plural tense there. It indicates that he's clothed in really nothing more than just a loincloth. God himself looking every bit like the lowest slave, taking the Revelation 4, holy God of heaven, taking their filthy feet in his holy hands and condescending now to meet their most basic needs, needs that none of them would ever have considered possibly meeting for one another. I mean, just think of that. The God of heaven looking up at these men from the floor willing to set aside all of the glory and honor that we've already read about willing to set aside the praise the standing and the glory all for the sake of you his own now being made clean see he considered your needs Philippians 2 and your interests as being more important and significant than his own why? So that you and I now and these men could now know such deep, profound love for the rest of eternity. That's what's going on here. And it's a stunning picture for us to behold. But here's the thing I want you to see. This grand act, this living parable, this 
immortal picture of divine love for filthy mankind that Jesus gives to us here. This wasn't an accident. It wasn't as though he showed up and was surprised at the selfishness of his men and said, well, somebody's got to do it. I guess it better be me. That's not what just happened here. See, Jesus knows the hearts of his men. He knows good and well that they're not about to stoop down and take this place up. And he has been, excuse me, he has been planning, that wasn't planned, for (laughs) this moment all day long. You say, well, where, where do you get that from in the text? Well, let me show you. If you remember Luke chapter 22, verse 10, I want you to listen carefully to the instructions that he gave at noon to Peter and John. And notice the one detail that he takes great care to point out. I mean, these men had a lot of preparatory work to do. We've already looked at that. But Jesus doesn't talk about any of that. There's only one thing he talks about. Listen carefully. He says, Behold, Luke 22, 10, When you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house and say, Where may I eat my Passover with my disciples? See, Jesus took great care to ensure that this house was pre-furnished with a basin of water. With so many preparations to be made, why did he zero in on this one in particular? The obvious reason? It's because he is planning to create a picture here that is intended to stand as an eternal token of his love that is going to go far, far beyond just the simple washing up before dinner. And you see, in that pre-knowledge, in that planning, in that foreknowledge, what we have happening before our eyes in these verses is Jesus kicking off a section in John's Gospel that is only going to end in chapter 19. And that's very important because this statement or this section opens in chapter 13 with a statement that Jesus loved his own to the end. Telos, that's the word in the language there. And this section is not going to end until John chapter 19. There is nothing between here and there but the cross. And at the end of chapter 19, at the end of the section that has just been introduced to us, what are Jesus' final words upon that cross? It has been ended. Telos, finished. And so this whole thing is intended to point us forward, not just to the washing of feet in an upper room. No, it is intended to point us to the ultimate conclusion of the end. See, that's what John is referring to here in John 13, 1. When he says that he loved his own to the end, he's pointing us not just to the washing of feet. That's an illustration. No, he is pointing us all the way to the very end, to the cross. And so in a very real sense then, the washing of their feet, it becomes a a powerful form of foreshadowing, a parable pointing towards the greatest gesture of love that this world and that you and I can ever know. And the Apostle Paul draws that out for us in Philippians chapter 2. You see, Philippians chapter 2 is actually a commentary on both the cross and what Jesus does here in John chapter 13. Turn with me to Philippians 2. I know we've read it once already this morning, and I'm glad you're familiar with it. It means we can go through it more quickly now. But I want you to see the exact parallel that exists between the actions of Jesus in John 13 and the statements of Paul in Philippians 2. Because his statements there in that text explain the reality of what Jesus is doing here in this text. Philippians chapter 2, Paul tells us that though Jesus was in the form of God, John 13 told us Jesus, knowing that he had come from God, 
did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And so he rose from supper. But, Philippians says, he emptied himself. He laid aside his outer garments. He took the form of a servant and took up a towel. He humbled himself and he poured water into a basin by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And then he began to wash. Note the redemptive imagery there. The blood that is flowing through Jerusalem. The disciples' feet. Taking their filth away. Do you see the blow-by-blow parallelism in those passages between what Jesus is doing here and what he then proceeds to do at the cross? Friends, John 13, 1 through 5, it's not just another narrative story in John's gospel, no. It is a profound theological metaphor that kicks our understanding of the love of God into high gear, an immeasurable love that points our attention ahead to what is just about about to happen the next morning when the sun comes up see the hour has come Jesus knows it John 13 1 and despite the pain of the betrayal and the strike of the serpent at his heels he would love those who were his own even to the end and indeed it would all then be finished and left upon that cross for him the day of suffering it had arrived and an eternity of glory now awaits see that's what's in his mind as he washes their feet and there is So much more that could and should and will be said here because we're going to spend the next two weeks really digging into the reality of Jesus' explanation of what he has done here, even as the room erupts into vehement protest. But for now, I want for us to conclude where Jesus started, and that's with our eyes on heaven. You see, there is only one appropriate response when we start to get just the slightest understanding of Christ's immeasurable love for us. And that's a response of worship. You say, how do you know that that should be the response to understanding and seeing the love of Christ as it's portrayed in a text like this? Because that's exactly what the Father gives to him upon his return to heaven. If we kept reading in Philippians chapter 2, because of his willingness to humble himself to the point of becoming a servant, to the point of becoming a man and dying a death on a cross, here is what the Father does. He highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that at at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. See, when Jesus, when he went back to God, that's how heaven received him, with an explosion of praise, worship, adoration, proclamation of his worthiness. And this morning, even as we now begin to prepare our hearts to celebrate that worthiness of King Jesus, who has loved us in this way, I want for us to go back to Revelation chapter 5 and hear the account of heaven's praise in light of what he's done because that praise should inform ours as well. Revelation chapter 5, we'll begin reading in verse 4. I began to weep loudly, John says, because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it there in heaven. 
And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more, for behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, and he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people from God, from every tribe and language and people and nation, and and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Friends, that's you. That's me basking in the cleansing of the work that Jesus did as He humbled Himself and shed His blood so that you and I might now know the love of God forever. Look at verse 11. John says, Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, all saying with a loud voice now, here's our anthem, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that's in them saying to Him, who sits on the throne and to his lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever and the four creatures said amen and the elders fell down and worshiped friend if that is the picture of what heaven's response is to the work of jesus in a text like this what should the response of the hearts in this room be i ask you The anthem in heaven is one that proclaims from one end to the other, every single heart there included. Worthy is this lamb and all glory and honor and praise are due to him. You see, there can never be attention placed upon us and our greatness. There can never be striving on our part to ascend to positions of glory and honor and power because there is only one person who deserves to be in that role and that is the person of King Jesus the Lamb who was slain so that we might now know love and life. You see, that's what our response should look like. And that's the point of this communion table. It's to remember, to rejoice, to unite our hearts and voices to proclaim the worthiness of Jesus, to join our hearts with the proclamation of what is being said in heaven. And this morning, as the men come forward, I want us to fix our gaze upon the reality of what this lamb has done on our behalf.